Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business, presented by FL Montreal, Dan Delmar and Mike Newton with you today. Good afternoon, Mike. Hey, Dan. How are you? Good. How are you? Very good. Thanks. Today on the show, another really great young Montreal tech company, and this is a very interesting product. This is helping people with uh, eye issues, uh, low vision. It helps. It's basically a pair of glasses that's aided by, by AI to help restore, uh, at least temporarily, people's vision. It's quite a remarkable innovation from Eiffel, E-Y-F-U-L. I don't know where Marjorie keeps finding our guests, but she's doing a great job trying to uh, find uh, the the different angles and and, and see where the the Montreal entrepreneurial scene is going. It's it's very fascinating. It's really great, and it's another one of these Centec companies. So they're incubated by, uh, they get mentorship by some local leaders, by universities, by government. It's, It's all included in this program and um, well you'll, you'll hear from Michael and Alex uh, from Eiffel soon and how they're using AR and XR not even quite sure what XR is but we'll get to that and uh, and how they are really trying to tackle a very common disability so they're a couple of fascinating young men they're coming up I just think that I think an interesting thing to 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 take note of is you know Quebec has has often uh, served as a great incubator for the rest of the world. Um, you know, one of the key things we're going to have to do with a lot of these young entrepreneurs is find a way to keep them here, keep the, get the money here, and continue to drive this out of Montreal and not, uh, you know, once again, play the Montreal Expos farm team for the rest of the Major League Baseball. And I think this is a key. And, you know, if a lot of people are taking information away from our shows, one of those is how do we keep a lot of this technology and, and brain power in Montreal? One of the answers, I think, uh, going back to when I was a journalist in 2012 and people were fighting for accessible tuition, uh, is that, having keeping the education system free. So I remember it was a tense time back then, but I think over time, the arguments in favor of really uh, giving a boost to the educational ecosystem around tech in Montreal, I think, have stood up very well over time. Yeah, I think the, I think the, the the education component of it's there. After that, it continues to be the funding. It continues to be the seed fund and the next round of funding. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of these uh, people, uh, and I guess we all would, when the big dollars start to come knocking, it's so much easier to to take money from a, a marketplace like the U.S. than it does to stay within Canada. And and I think we have to try and find a way to continue to foster beyond the education and beyond the startup level. All right, so we'll talk to Michael Alex in a few minutes. But first, as usual, uh, some thought leadership, news and notes, and advice for entrepreneurs in our in our introductory segment here. And let's start with uh, managers and how to develop star managers. And this is something, Mike, um, this is an article from HBR, sort of uh, effective employee development and how to sort of pick out those star managers and help them help your business succeed. Uh, we're, we have an expanding business right now, and I, I, I think the biggest challenge for me is not necessarily finding really competent, skilled millennials who are comfortable working in media and related industries. It's finding the ones who know that they're skilled and know that they're capable of being managers. There's this really pervasive thing among millennials called imposter syndrome. And I think it's the, the phenomenon has convinced people that they are imposters when sometimes they are not. And so my biggest time suck right now is trying to convince some of my managers that they are ready for prime time. And I'm going to be totally honest about that because I've had these conversations even in recent weeks with people and I say, you know, you are ready, um, but, you know, some, some feel that they're ready and some feel that they're a little nervous. But, uh, you know, I think we need to be, as a generation, as millennials, ready to lead. 
Most definitely. I, I think there's a lot. I mean, I'm, Dan, I could take this that, that opening topic and run in about 10 different directions with it. You know, the whole imposter syndrome discussion ultimately is a psychological term, um, which, you know, it, it is a byproduct to a certain degree of what I think most of us uh, hit a stage of our career where we look at it and go, you know, somebody's going to figure out we don't really know what we're talking about or what we're doing. Um, you know, part of that is is confidence. Part of that is what we've learned. Um, but I think it's gotten worse during COVID. And, and, and I think part of the reason it's gotten worse during COVID is the fact that the influence that a manager has is one that is is rather elusive. And, you know, a, a great manager can make a world of difference to the team. Uh, and so can a poor manager. And, and, and you know, defining that environment, you know, the managers are usually the closest to the team. They should be responsible for the most education. Uh, they have probably the largest influence on a younger staff. Um, but none of them ever learned to manage during a pandemic, and especially for younger managers that are coming up. If, you know, you come up, you get to watch people, you see how people manage. Well, you've been managing from home for two years. You're thrown into an environment where, Everything you've ever learned about managing, which was people skill related, has been face to face and hands on. And all of a sudden we send you home and say, guys, you know, go figure this out and go solve the problem. And oh, by the way, don't screw up your team. And, and I think that the pandemic has created a, a massive gap between where people stand and where they think they want to stand. And I think imposter syndrome is, is going to come to continue to play in this. The other exercise a little bit, and it'll be the second topic that we talk about, is we've grown up in a perfectionist society. So we've grown up learning that you don't make mistakes. So many people in many industries choose not to make a decision as opposed to make a mistake. And I think from a management perspective, that that's that's a that's a big no-no. It's not whether you make a mistake, it's how you address it. One of my tactics uh, to encourage uh, some of my managers to take more initiative is to kind of throw them in the deep end. Not to throw them in completely unprepared, um, but to just uh, help them harness the energy that comes with some of these new experiences and just taking charge of a project for the first time. What do you, what do you make of the throwing in the deep end tactic? I think they both work. Uh, I, I do think that at some point in our lives, uh, you know, depending on how far along that you manage to take yourself and whether you're going to take risks or not, you're always going to be thrown into a deep end and need to learn that skill set as to how to manage. Uh, some people will take the more conservative way through life and possibly not be thrown into the deep end because they choose not to. Uh, and others, that's part of, you know, if you look at an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur willing to jump into a deep end times way too quickly. Um, but they need to learn to adjust and, and how to adapt that. And, and a manager's perspective, I think you you need to provide them with enough tools. You can't you can't baby them. And, and, and it's a very fine line. How much of this uh, is is you know is is the way that the world is right now? I think a lot of people are very concerned um, about what tomorrow brings. So their confidence starts one notch below where it would normally be. So all of a sudden, if you walk into a manager role lacking confidence, uh, you're going to have a problem. The, you know, you need to be, the team needs to know who you are and what you're doing. And there's a fine line between, you know, again, between arrogance and confidence. And if I could just note, you know, in these uncertain times, um, referring to a number of events happening around the world right now, everyone's uncertain. So just keep that in mind, millennial managers. It's an uncertain time for everyone. Yeah, because if, if, if you're uncertain, I can guarantee you, so is your team. And I got to tell you, through two years of COVID, so are the people above you. Owners are uncertain. There's a lot of uncertainty out there, and people are looking for – and I have to say, the one thing people are really looking for right now is leadership, and they're looking for people to, to help take them by the hand to a certain degree. And I think managers have an opportunity to either stand up and, 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 and 
shine or unfortunately uh, get lost in the mix somewhere. Let's uh, dig in a bit more to this other piece from HBR, Harvard Business Review, by the way. Uh, great insights in terms of business. Uh, regrets are inevitable. Start learning from them. Um, when it comes to regrets, we all have them, of course. But do we systematize uh, the regret process in our business? Do we analyze what happened, how to improve in the future? Those are questions that we should ask. So, Dan, I'm actually going to take this in, in, in a completely different direction. You know, most of us that uh, find ourselves in the workplace are a byproduct of where we've come from and where we've grown up. And, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, and I think there's a generational side to this. I knew growing up as a, as a kid back in the 70s and, and early 80s, you know, we made a lot of mistakes and we were allowed to make mistakes. I, I, I looked in the next generations coming up, and maybe this is a bit talking to your millennial discussion, how, you know, we were much more of a perfectionist society. There was a fear of failure that was ingrained to all of us. Well, a lot of kids hit the point in life where, you know, their first loss or their first, uh, you know, non-tie uh, became a, a catastrophic failure to them. You know, and, and I think by the competition at a young stage and whether that's individual, whether that's a team sport, whether that's wherever you happen to be working, it teaches us to win and lose. And in winning and losing, we learn what works and what doesn't work. We learn what a mistake looks like. We learn how we don't like how it feels. Uh, and, you know, if you're reasonably intelligent, you make the mistake once you go, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go forward. So entrepreneurs live in the same world. I mean, at the end of the day, an entrepreneur, very few people hit it home run bang first time out of the uh, first time out of the batter's box so the reality of winning and losing and trying and failing and experiencing is something that we need to take back into the younger stages of, of the kids coming up and teach them it's okay to be wrong but here's what you do with it it's okay to have gone in the wrong direction now how do you fix it you need to understand repercussions and you need to understand accountability and i think you've heard us talk about this on the show many times before that we are right now lacking accountability in the workforce and you know as as we continue to move forward Lacking accountability means that in many cases, you make a mistake. We're almost afraid to tell you you did a bad job. Well, every time I don't tell you you made a mistake, how do you know not to make that mistake going forward? And I think that you know we learn so much from where we've come from. We learn so much from our ability to win and to lose and to make mistakes. And I think you know some of our biggest regrets should be not having those opportunities to make a mistake. Um, and I don't know if that's because we're a perfectionist society. I don't know if that's because as humans, we're trying to protect our kids. And But you know we're not doing them a service. And fast forward to this conversation that you started with, Dan, is we see that when they hit the marketplace. We see that when they walk into jobs. Their ability to take criticism is crushing for many people. And if it's not handled properly, you know, what does that mean? So if you're a manager and you're trying to teach somebody and you came up a little bit old school and you say, you know what, Dan, you made a mistake. Here's how you fix it. And the other side, instead of going says, Hey, it's a great idea. I'm going to learn from it. it goes, wait a second. I've never really made a mistake before. What are you telling me? Am I failing? So, you know, there's a lot of things we need to, the experience drives who we are and who we become bad as much as if not more so than good. And we need to find the key here is finding an environment in our workspace that's safe, that allows people to make mistakes, obviously not ones that make us go bankrupt, but allow us to make mistakes and to learn from those mistakes and allow it to dress and basically accept that failure is all part of life's learning lessons. And we'll talk to a couple of millennial entrepreneurs who certainly don't have a deficit of confidence and uh, aren't afraid to explore uncharted territory. CEO Michael Perrault and CTO Alex Benjamin. Michael and Alex. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having us today. 
It's our pleasure, and uh, we're going to really dig into this gadget, and it might take some explaining. So first, the easiest question is, what is Eiffel? So at Eiffel, we are helping people that are affected by low vision. Uh, there's a couple of conditions that we're targeting, the main one being macular degeneration. It's this kind of disease uh, that people that are a little bit older are going to complain about having a dark spot in their vision. Uh, and basically, we're using this new tech uh, called augmented reality. It's kind of a follow-on to virtual reality. And we capture the world around the people through a camera and adjust it uh, to their vision and allows them finally to be able to see the world again through uh, their visual problems. So... Michael, do they have to be far far along in, in, in a process in terms of already starting with macular degeneration? Or is this something that you can use in a predictive value before somebody hits a certain stage of life or a certain le level of, uh, of uh, visual loss? So our algorithms that allows uh, for the vision enhancements will pick up some traces of the disease, will pick up uh, and help the patient know what's going to be coming, um, except that to... Our focus is really the patients that are a little bit later on in the disease because uh, at the end of the day, when you're not there yet, you don't have these visual problems. You do not seek uh, visual enhancements. Uh, so it's really for patients that are a bit uh, farther down the road, I would say. So can you maybe just explain visual enhancements to me and, and, and our audience? I mean, I think we all have a, a certain viewpoint of what that is, but I'm sure there's a more technical term than the one I'm thinking. So. Yeah, so basically, uh, when you think about having bad vision, most of the time we just put on glasses and it works pretty well. Uh, this is the, the main problem there is because our vision is blurry. With macular degeneration, uh, we're going to have some dark spots in our vision. There's going to be some distortion, kind of when you look at something um, that is a little bit muddy or through water, like the, the lines don't add up, things get a little bit weird. Uh, and on top of that, there's blurriness and becomes dark. So all of these problems together be, makes it that it's hard to see. Um, and this is exactly where we are picking up. So we're looking at the medical images that are currently being used by the professionals to extract what is the information finally that the person is actually seeing as of now. Because we have augmented reality headsets, which are basically transparent displays in front of the eye of the user, we're going to be able to modify the image itself um, so where there's a darker spot, we can locally enhance uh, the brightness. We're going to be able, we are able to adjust uh, the different regions of the vision really tailored to our patient's need. Uh, I talked about brightness, bl uh, blurriness is also one that we are targeting um, because uh, this kind of disease uh, is different from one person to another. It's not going to be the same blurriness in each part of your vision. Uh, and we adapt for those as well. And finally, same thing for um, distortion. So we really undo this distortion, gets all the lines where they should be. So, so by improving the, that component, do you, is there actually a slowdown in the degeneration process? Or is this constantly adapting to try and adapt to the vision loss that's, that's coming for someone? There's no reduced, uh, the, 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 it doesn't slow down the, the, the disease, unfortunately. Uh, you still need to work with your ophthalmologist uh, because the, the, there's some this condition is really something that is uh, something else I would say in terms of uh, decreases in the vision, except that we are able to constantly adapt. And to do so, basically, we just use uh, the image that are routinely being taken at the ophthalmologist. A patient is going to have two to three uh, scans a year. Every time there's a scan, we're able to readjust the, the glasses. Instead of having one pair of new glasses every two or three years like we normally have, 
we just readjust them. It's the same, the same headset, the same glasses, and it's only software adjustments that allows us uh, to give you back the best version possible at this point in time. So let's take a step back. What drove you to this type of environment? What is it? Was there somebody in your families that had macular generation, or like, how did this idea come about? And 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 what's I guess the end game for you guys? Um, indeed, there was a person in my family. Um, my grandmother had macular degeneration. Uh, she she uh, unfortunately passed away. Um, but I realized um, that there was really nothing for people with macular degeneration when I saw her struggle. She's the kind of person that was generous to everyone in her life. Uh, she had a center to feed people, homeless people in the Schlage Maison Neuve. Um, and all over her life, she, fight, she fought to help people around her. And when it was her time to get some help, there was basically nothing uh, to help them go through. And she was in a retirement center and could not read anymore, could not listen to watch your TV anymore, and basically take care of herself. Um, so that was a big uh, component and it, it really hit home when I myself a couple of years ago got hospitalized because uh, I got a, a diagnostic of um, multiple sclerosis. It's not the same disease at all, except that this is only when I understood what does it mean to have an handicap? What does it mean to have one of your senses, one of your abilities limited? Um, until then, I only understood that my grandmother was living through something that was difficult uh, and would not be able to do the same thing as everyone else, except that when you go through it, at least for me, it was really to understand, okay, this is what it means not to be able to be on the same level as everyone, uh, because there's an, ex an internal factor as uh, so this matter um, that limits you and there's nothing you can do about it. It's just there and it, it just sucks. It just sucks. All right, so Alex, um, Michael's given us his perspective. It touched him personally. What brought uh, Alex Benjamin into uh, into the fold of Eiffel? Yeah, so I personally don't know anyone with macular degeneration, though it is a very, very common problem. Um, what drove me to Eiffel was two things. Um, before Eiffel, I was getting my PhD, um, and part of the reason I got into that was to translate um, research and engineering into impact. And I did feel that was sorely lacking. So the impact, the direct impact value of Eiffel and Eiffel's product is very clear. Um, to restore sight and to restore independence in a population that is already marginalized is something that drove me to it. And then at the end of the day, I am an engineer. So the the engineering challenge of what we're doing uh, obviously was enticing as well, and it continues to be because it is uh, it is not an easy problem to fix. So you said one word that I find very interesting that, that we can probably elaborate a bit more on, and that's the term impact. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of people that are doing pure and applied research. Uh, that ability to take what you're learning or what you're studying and have some kind of uh, focus, I guess, within a marketplace uh, you know, is, is really making a difference. And maybe you just want to give people an idea of what impact means to you and, and, and where it means for Eiffel. Yeah. So in, if I were to very clearly define impact in my, in my opinion and, and what I'm looking for, it would be uh, fundamental research, fundamental science and engineering translated to making lives better. Um, I, I, agree, I admit that different people have different definitions of impact, um, and that's not the only way to create impact. 
But in my mind, when we first tested our device with a person who hadn't really seen clearly in decades, and for the first time, this person was able to and um, was overjoyed to the point of being in tears, I think that is very concrete impact. Um, I'm not saying that our device is ready, you know, to go to the masses, but even that kind of incremental impact is, in my mind, uh, very necessary, especially for a medical device company. From a product standpoint, so you have these glasses, we know it's AR, uh, augmented reality. Can you explain a little bit further what AR is, what XR is as well, and how it applies to your product? Yeah. Um, so a distinction has to be made. So I, I think just taking a very quick step back is the question of why we need to use augmented reality to begin with. And the reason is because your regular glasses obviously are not augmented reality glasses. They are prescription glasses. And the reason that is, is because they attempt to correct um, changes in the shape of your eye that are quote unquote external. The problem with macular degeneration is that the ultimate disease lies in the retina, which is the screen of your eye. So there is no prescription glass that is that can be purchased that can do what your glasses currently do. So that's why we need to use augmented reality. So augmented reality itself is differentiated from its cousin virtual reality. So virtual reality is where a person would be immersed in an environment that is completely detached from their original environment. So you would be transported to Paris, for example, and you would be immersed in that environment. You have no, you're not grounded to your current environment. Augmented reality, as its name suggests, augments your existing environment. So you would still be in your office, you would still be in your home, um, but in addition to viewing the normal world, you would view overlays on it. So you would potentially be able to display messages or your schedule or your calendar or another person, but it would be within the context of a grounded reality. Why that is important to our specific uh, customer or patients is because obviously if you want to treat somebody's vision, um, isolating them from their real world is, is not the way to go. So the ability to have this pass-through feature, basically where they see their world, and then to be able to augment it with corrections um, is why we chose AR. And that's the primary differentiator of AR from VR. And mixed reality is just a uh, term that, in that includes both, that includes a mix and a blend of both. And uh, Mike, we're really profiling a fascinating company. Michael Perot, the CEO, and Alex Benjamin, the CTO of Eiffel, that's E-Y-F-U-L, um, a company at the crossroads of tech and medicine. And they have these uh, glasses that help those with low vision. And uh, basically, it just brings back some of their autonomy and their independence using AR. And uh, we'll continue our, 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 our tech chat just really briefly, Alex, um, using AR. But is, it, is this uh, something that's connected to the person? Is this a wearable sort of tech? Um, how is the device interacting with the human um, when they're walking around? Yeah, so the form factor of AR glasses initially was quite bulky, um, but with new generations of these glasses coming along, they will look and feel like 
sunglasses, uh, slightly heavier sunglasses. Um, they have onboard processing capabilities. They have a battery. They are sometimes tethered to phones, but not necessarily. Um, so our primary mode of interaction would be with a remote. So you would put the glasses on and the remote would allow a user to control the settings as necessary. But one of the key differentiators that Michael pointed out earlier is we want to be able to do this in a completely automated fashion. So the user would put the glasses on and that's it because we have already predicted what the corrections necessary are. We've already predicted what they see. So we know everything that needs to be known. So there would be no manual adjustments necessary. That would be our differentiator. Thanks, Alex. Um, Michael, if I go take me take me back to August 2019 when you guys started this exercise, which I have to say, uh, you know, seems like decades ago since COVID has kicked in. Um, has anything changed in the way you've looked at this business or, or or the rollout because of COVID, or has it been kind of smooth and, and unaffecting to to where you saw the saw Eiffel going? There was a huge change that uh, happened in the company by trade. I'm an electrical engineer. I was looking to develop uh, those glasses uh, pretty much inside of the company. Um, and two things happened during uh, COVID and during that uh, time frame. First, uh, augmented reality headsets, uh, th there was a lot of buzz around them because of uh, the metaverse and uh, everything that we're hearing uh, today. So a lot of development is happening right now um, by the big companies, by Google, by Facebook, by Snapchat is one of the big players there, uh, Apple as well. And we decided, you know what, let's not try and compete with them. Instead of developing our own headsets uh, and competing, we're going to use the technology that's being developed by these big players. At the same time, uh, there was... Um, there was really a shortage uh, of electronics and the supply chains were broken because of COVID. So we really repositioned ourselves to be a software developer. Uh, we're, we're really building on the products that are being currently developed uh, by with huge fortunes of money uh, in these big companies instead of competing. So that was a big change that happened because of COVID and since the last two and a half years. So at this point, are you at liberty to say who's manufacturing the, uh, the, the, the models or is this something that's a little too proprietary at this point? No, not at all. Uh, so one of the big players right now is Microsoft. Uh, there's some news uh, here and there that uh, Apple is going uh, to release something either this year or next year. Uh, Snapchat just made an acquisition in that space. Google made another acquisition about uh, last year, I think. Uh, in that space as well. So there, there's a lot of movements. And the reason is because of the metaverse, people are starting to see the augmented reality headsets as the next cell phone. Uh, eventually, we're not going to have our own cell phones. We're going to wear these glasses and everything is going to come to us. We're going to be able to interact directly with our environment. Um, this is really the vision that's being pushed and that is being developed. Um, but one of the key categories there is that People with low vision uh, still need to be able to see the world. And there, we believe there's a way to use this technology uh, to really render uh, render and give back this autonomy to people. Um, I'm not sure it answers the question. Yeah, it does. It's, it's I mean, the evolution of a lot of this, and, and interestingly, interestingly enough, I had a very good friend back in the 90s who, you know, uh, was doing virtual reality work. And I can remember the headsets and I can remember the onyxes that were driving 
uh, you know, this whole exercise. And we've come such a long way in the technology. And I know along the way, places like Concordia and, and, and a number of other, obviously, universities have, have served as research centers. Uh, and I noticed that you guys do have a partnership with Concordia. What kind of, uh, what kind of involvement are you doing uh, with the universities? Uh, we're working with university to get uh, access to some medical information, uh, medical partnership. We're a company that's mostly uh, ba based around engineers. Uh, and it's really by working with Concordia, with University of Montreal, uh, and the other healthcare centers that we are able to really bridge this gap. Uh, so this is the work that's currently being done with uh, these universities. You know, it fascinates me, Dan, that we are once again looking at um, some very young Montrealers with some, you know, brilliant ideas and, and, and a lot of initiative to, to move us forward. And I think that, you know, I believe, uh, uh, Michael and Alex, you're, you're a byproduct of Centec and have spent some time with uh, that incubation side of things. But, you know, you're at the early stages of all of this. Where do you want to take this company? What does this look like in two years or five years? Is this, you know, uh, a fringe player or are you looking at taking this mainstream somewhere in the future? We're definitely looking at taking it uh, mainstream. We're actually in the process of uh, our regulatory approval. Um, and the goal is really to be able to allow any patient to go to their optometrist, get the scans that they usually have, um, and be able to have access to this technology. So the, the optometrists would become our distributors, and you would be able to have access to the, this technology very, very easily. Uh, it is not the case as of today. We need to still work with the patients and we're in the phase of testing. Um, but in five years from now, we're going to find it everywhere in every optometrist. And lastly, Michael, quick question just on futurism. You know, the Elon Musk company Neuralink, I mean, they're sort of tempting to go right into someone's brain to sort of attack the problem. Are you guys keeping an eye on that? And is that part of your future? We're keeping an eye on that. Uh, there's definitely a lot of possibilities there. Um, for the first... 10, 20 years, uh, it's not such a threat because uh, the, the visual cortex is very, very complex. Uh, what they're trying to target is mo as of now is mostly um, some, some yes, no decision criteria, some tasks that are much easier. If you just think about your, your eye, you're able to see higher than 4K resolution while they're trying to tackle yes or no. Um, it is it is for sure going to get out there at some point. And yes, if we're able to completely bypass the eye, there are some conditions for which it is needed and it's going to be very beneficial um, because there's there, there's some other problems in between. But yeah, it's part of the future as well. Okay, very cool. Michael and Alex, uh, thanks so much. We're going to have your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur in a few minutes. But coming up next, Carlo Lupo, tax partner at FL Full Orlando, talks about TFSAs, RESPs, and RRSPs, uh, and other ways to save your funds. Carlo Lupo is a tax partner at FL Full Orlando. Welcome back, Carlo. Thank you very much, Dan, for having me again. Um, you are right. Uh, we are past the March 1st deadline for contributing to uh, RSPs, and, and that typically happens to be a pain point uh, for a lot of accountants where everyone is scrambling uh, in the last couple of days winding up uh, to that Mar March 1st deadline. Um, but, you know, people should consider that it's an easy vehicle to save money for their future contributing on a monthly basis. This way we're not uh, racing ahead of time to get that money in uh, before that uh, March 1st deadline. Why someone would want to contribute to an RSP? Phenomenal vehicle to save money. First of all, it, you claim it as a deduction off of your personal taxes. Uh, the goal in mind is, is to save tax at the highest rate. So if you're in a high tax bracket, 
that RSP contribution comes off as a deduction, so you're saving a high rate of tax. The end goal is, is when you retire and start to draw down the funds in the future, that you find yourself in a lower tax bracket. And that's a win-win situation because you're saving tax while you're working and young and contributing, and then you're paying a lower rate of tax when you're uh, pulling the money out uh, from your plan. And, and that's great because you're actually pulling money from the government versus giving money back to the government. So that, that, that's the win-win situation. Um, people tend to hesitate between the different types of plans that are out there. You know, a uh, common question is, well, should I contribute to an RSP? Should I contribute to a TFSA? Contribute to an RESP? They're different vehicles and they satisfy different needs, right? An RSP, RRSP is, is looking forward to the future. TFSA might be a little bit more short term, although it has become very attractive um, in the last number of years because the contribution room um, that you can do in a TFSA has grown uh, quite significantly. Right now, uh, we're talking about $81,500 that you can contribute to a TFSA. And just for people that don't know what that is, it's a tax-free savings account. Um, it was introduced in 2009, and basically you can contribute money, and that money, in while in the plan, grows, um, income is earned, um, capital gains are realized, there's no tax that's paid, and you can take the money out at any point in time without any tax consequence. So it's a great vehicle if you're looking for short-term strategy to, to kind of get income, and especially if an RRSP is not an attractive vehicle because you're not in a high tax bracket in the immediate. The RESP, which is a registered education savings plan, is great when you have young children. You're contributing and saving towards the future for their educational needs, uh, college and, um, and university post-secondary. Uh, the way it works is the government will give you a grant, uh, federal government up to 20% of the contribution, capped at $1,000. Quebec will give you 10% capped at $500. So if you're making a maximum contribution of $5,000 a year, it's $1,500 in your pocket that the government is giving you. And while the plan is working for you, you're generating income on a tax-free basis. And in the future, that money is extracted to your children to pay for their educational needs. And guess what? Your kids are usually in a very low tax bracket, probably pay very to low, uh, little to no tax. So it's a win-win situation when you're saving for, for their needs. So yeah. basically, those are the, those are the plans, and you know, I invite anyone who wants to to, to get more information to you know to reach out and uh, see what we can do for them. Yeah, one of the things, Carlo, with a lot of the registered plans falls into, I guess, the generalization of, uh, you know, financial management that people read in the paper and, and and see everywhere. And, you know, everybody needs to look at these on a specific basis. You know, your discussion, we've always been taught, well, you know, you max out your RRSP. Well, if you're in a low tax bracket, maybe that's not the right alternative. Um, you know, the RESP, well, if my kids don't go to school, what happens? I mean, you have to look at these things and you have to understand before you get, you know, you, you, you invest in some of these. Uh, and as well, there are management fees and, and, and custodial fees that are associated. So you have to look at the benefit across the board. Um, and I think, you know, from Carlo, from your perspective, you're 100% right. I, I, people need to reach out when, uh, when they're uncertain. Of course, no one plan is perfect for everyone. They really need to sit down with a financial advisor or, or a tax advisor or their accountant or whomever and really chart out a course for the future in terms of what plan is best for them. Carlo Lupo, tax partner at FL. Thanks so much, Carlo. My pleasure.
And as we come to the end of our show, as usual, we'll turn to our entrepreneurs, Alex Benjamin, the CTO, and Michael Perot, the CEO of Eiffel, and we'll ask them for their one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. Let's start with Alex. My one piece of advice, I think, is something most people would say as well. Um, it is to make sure that there is a very good case, business case, for pursuing an idea. Um, not every idea necessarily has to be entrepreneurial, and there's nothing wrong with pursuing an idea for the sake of the idea, but a good business has to have a market fit. So before pursuing that, just make sure it exists, is, would be my advice. Good advice. And uh, Michael, your thoughts? I would say surround yourself uh, with the best people that you can think out there. Uh, don't be shy to reach out to them. Don't be shy to try and get the, big, the bigger connections, the people that seem out of reach. Uh, they're the ones that are going to be able to bring you to the next level. And don't hesitate to, take, to talk about your idea to everyone around. No one is going to steal it. Uh, just create a lot of, word, of buzz and really try to make the world a better place. And Mike, final thoughts, uh, just another great young company out of the Centec program and just so exciting. As Louis Tetsu mentioned recently on the show, to have our education system, our public-private partnerships, our universities all collaborating to make some really exciting ventures. Most definitely. I mean, you look at, uh, we, we, we seem to have hit a lull somewhere in, in, in that about 10 or 15 years ago, and, and we're starting to see a lot more interest, a lot more um entrepreneurial side i think of uh, of a lot of the ideas it's not just the brainstorming but it's the as uh, as alex said earlier the impact of that brainstorming and where it is and you know we've highlighted a number of them on the show recently and i have to say there it, it's a very very encouraging perspective and you know I, i'd love to say everyone will work and it uh, it they likely won't um but you know what i mean if we don't try we never know and it's uh, it's great to see a lot of the trying happening right here in in montreal and in quebec yeah, thanks again to Marjorie from uh, FL, our executive producer, for setting this up, and uh, Michael Perot and Alex Benjamin of Eiffel. Congratulations, guys, and best of luck. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you so much. And coming up next week, Mike, another interesting young business, Alex Vertfey, CEO of the After Disaster Temporary Accommodation Network, Sinistar. So this is if you get into some kind of uh, disaster and you need a place to stay, Sinistar is there for. So that's coming up next week. A reminder, you can subscribe to Today's Entrepreneur as a podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite platform, and head over to Today's Entrepreneur for hundreds of local entrepreneur profiles, including Louis Tetzer from last time. We'll see you back here next week. of TNKR Media.